Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, people of Earth, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. It is a bright and sunny Sunday here, not just in Melbourne, but I think all around the world for a variety of reasons that people can get their head around if they've been watching the news. On the line with me now is one of my, oh, hang on, I should say it differently, my favorite team, my favorite team, sorry, guys, Chris KP. <laughs> good morning. Hello, how are you? Uh, it's good to see you, pal. Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. And somewhere else, no doubt not far from you, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Shane, and what a bloody good morning it is, hey? I I can't wipe the smile off my face. Yes, well, uh, the issue, of course, at hand, if you have been under a rock, folks, is there was a certain leader (laughs) in the world who was anti-science, and because we're a science show, we just like to say to him, you're fired. And uh, moving (laughs) moving on, (laughs) moving on, Uh, the sooner you get out of that uh, White House, the better. Now, we're going to give you an hour of science. We've got a whole other guest lined up uh, very soon. But before we get to that, we wanted to talk about some of the issues around science going on at the moment. This is basically because the four of us were all glued to our our computers just refreshing the New York Times website. And so we didn't get time to prepare any actual science news story. But we've got big opinions on other things. And Dr. Ewan, we were reflecting earlier on some of the issues regarding publications around COVID. Do tell. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, we've had this pandemic and scientists have been scrambling to understand, you know, how the the COVID virus actually works and affects people and and obviously ideally what we can do about it. And um, review normally of articles can take several months um, and and longer, in fact, to publication time. But we're seeing incredibly rapid publication times for some papers, in some cases less than two weeks, which is almost unheard of. But we're also seeing lots of manuscripts actually uploaded to websites while they're in review And journalists in some cases have been referring to those almost as statement of fact in terms of this study has Mm. shown this. And it's really important that I think we understand that, you know, um, scientists have this process called peer review where your colleagues, you know, scrutinise your work quite substantially and they look at things like sample size, you know, whether your study had an appropriate control and therefore, you know, how confident we can be in the power of inference. You know, can we actually say this is likely to be true? We can never say it's completely true. That's not how science works. But unfortunately, in some cases, journalists have been basically reporting stuff as if they were fact. And I think it's really important that we understand that, yes, we need to get this information out to help the medical response and the health response to this virus. But we do need to be careful about how things are reported because, you know, science is, is you know, it's, it's a process, right? And, and we learn more as we do experiments and we make observations. And we may be wrong in some cases, and that's fine. We learn from that too. Mm. So we have to be careful about not giving, I guess, the public false hope or false information by sometimes reporting on studies when, you know, the story is less than clear in some cases. Yeah. It's interesting uh, you use the word colleagues there with regards to publications, Dr. Ewan, because I think in many cases uh, other scientists uh, reading our work are not colleagues. They're actually in many cases competitors working in very similar spaces. And if they can find something wrong, they will yeah. um, because it's not yeah. necessarily in their best best interest for you to get across the line first. So you, you have to make sure that the work stands up to scrutiny. And in many cases, you 
you'll find uh, people having their publications go back and forth several times before they end up being published. So the idea of um, you know all these publications being done within such a short space of time, and I understand that for COVID there's been some 60,000 publications sent in this year. Uh, the average time normally for journal publications, turnaround time is about 100 days. For the COVID ones, it's down to about seven days, which is a... I don't think many of us can sort of sit there and go, well, you know, I dropped absolutely everything to review Dr. Jen's paper because it was the most important thing for me that week. And hence, I got it back to her in five days and et cetera. So there's there's some issues of scrutiny there that we have to be just a little careful of and make sure that they're right. I think the thing that really concerns me about it, well, at two levels, one is, you know, we know that everybody is incredibly burnt out this year and working incredibly hard. And if you're rushing a peer review because your work load is obscene you know that that's difficult in one way but the other thing that really concerns me is just you know we are all in the game of building building public trust in science we know if we know if we want to progress along the the trajectory that that certainly I know the four of us and I'm sure a huge proportion of our listeners want to see us progressing along the public has to be with us in terms of trusting the science and everything that Ewan has just pointed out shows that sometimes we get it wrong and that's fine that's what the peer review process is there for that's what the whole um you know collegiate people working together and collaborating on science that's why it gets us towards the the truest answer we can but along the way there are going to be mistakes when things are rushed and we saw a huge backlash around you know in the early days the story was masks don't make any difference when masks then became mandatory the huge public backlash against but you told us masks don't help why are you now telling us to wear masks and yeah, it just really concerns me that as much as possible we need everybody to understand the scientific process, the time involved, and, and the fact that, you know, we, we may get new information along the way that changes the previous story. Yeah. There is there is something that is incredibly empowering about that. If, if people understand the process and where a particular bit of information or whatever they've heard has come from, where it fits in that process, then it gives them, they should have enormous confidence in how to trust it, what to do with it, if anything. The um, There was a great moment... Uh, a couple in a couple of places when they were talking about um, the trials of various vaccines, and they were at pains to say that if anything goes wrong, it has to stop. And that when the Oxford one stopped, and it was great watching news services explain what the process is and what influences the ceasing of a, of a trial, etc. Because that kind of information never happens. All you mm. normally hear is we've made a discovery. You know, it's now law. So I think I think there's there's an expectation on on communicators and especially on on the media to be upfront with where something fits in that process so that people have an understanding of, of what they yeah. should or shouldn't do with it. I think, uh, Chris KP, you talk about a really good example there with the, the halting of the Oxford trial because for for the very small percentage of people who understand how these trials work, and, you know, that's a very small percentage of people, and, and yeah. I, I didn't early on, but I've learned a lot over the last, you know, 28 years of radio, I suppose, but um, the fact that it was halted to me, was a real positive thing because it said to me, okay, the normal safety protocols that, that we would expect here are being followed. And yes, it sounds rushed, but the fact that that halting happened gave me some confidence that the right sort of process was being followed. It's, it is difficult though when you, as you say, Dr. Jen, when the media are just looking for the next clickbait tagline to put up, what, what's happened a lot this year, and it was, it was great, I remember this old phrase, but it was re- reminded to me by a colleague in Dublin just recently where she said, you know, absence of evidence is not yeah. evidence of absence. And this has been exactly. the mistake that has been made all along this year. And I think unfortunately for the media and, and many of the scientists involved, uh, the, the 
public are actually a lot smarter than they're given credit for. And, and you know, you only have to think to yourself, okay, so masks don't help. Well, why is it when I get surgery, the doctors are all wearing masks? Is it just so is, – is it like, you know, when you go to the pharmacist and, and their, their work area is slightly raised physically for some weird reason? Um, is it like that or is there some purpose to all this hand washing and mask wearing? I think, you know, it doesn't take – much for a member of the public to sort of put two and two together in there and say, well, hang on, I'm hearing some bullshit from somewhere here. I'm just not quite sure where from yet, but I will get through that and, and, and work it out. So we're, we're progressing slowly, but, um, but boy, is, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, as you guys know, I wrote an article on vaccination uptake recently with Margie Danchin from the Children's Hospital. And, you know, we said the education programs around vaccinations have been, you know, dramatically <laughs> underdone. And we really need to make sure people understand the, the safety, the risks, the, the reasons, you know, the primary reasons and so forth behind these sorts of, um, these sorts of programs. Because if we don't put the work in, uh, we're going to have trouble getting convincing people to take a vaccine that I am sure in some settings the media will paint as a bit more risky than normal. Mm. And that can yeah. be problematic. Mm. What are your thoughts, guys? Well, the other thing I wanted to mention to you, to you all um, was this idea of how, how much um, political weight there is around various scientific ideas and decisions. And the three examples I've been giving to people are in the vaccination space, there's very little political sort of manoeuvring at all. Um, if you move into something like climate change, <clears throat> there is quite a politicization of this. You know, we see the left and the right dealing this very differently. But then the extreme for me is when you have um, the sort of political interference in, in science in a major way. And we've seen that in the US with Trump and the wearing of masks, where wearing a mask became a political statement, not a, a health protection item. And the, the result is just, you know, catastrophic as a result of, you know, politics getting in the way of science there. It's a, it's, you're right. It, it is catastrophic. It's a, it's a massive and rapid impact. Um, in a very tangible way. What's interesting about that, though, is the wearing of a mask or not is an incredibly convenient way to express a position. Whether you're going putting a mask on for, you know, very reasonable disease uh, avoidance, <laughs> that's that's one, one reason to do it. But everyone can see you're doing it. So whether you choose to do it for that reason, choose to do it as a statement of supporting science or choose not to do it um, in opposition, it's a really convenient um, expression of, uh, of, of where you're standing, which you don't have with vaccinations. You can protest if you want. You can write stuff on social media. You can walk around with a placard. You can wear a T-shirt if you want. But it's it's a it's a there's an extra step involved. So the I think you're right. The um, the wearing or not of masks has sort of writ large um, the differences mm. that people have and the impact that it can have. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean, that's a similar thing with climate change too, because you know you can make a whole lot of decisions around the food that you buy and the clothes that you wear, and whether you own a car or not, and, and whether you pay for green power and all these things. But none of those are nearly as visible in the simple way of I'm wearing a mask or I'm not wearing mm. a mask, which is why it's just become such a powerful statement. Mm. And I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the, you know, obviously on so many levels, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens between now and the 20th of January in the US. But I'm mm. very interested to see. I hope someone's tracking whether the Portion of people wearing, wearing masks mask goes up. It'd be nice. Or not. It's interesting, yeah, Eugene, you, um, you actually do bring up an interesting point of what's visible. And I, I can I can think of two examples where um, that visibility is really clear. So, as everyone in Melbourne knows, when we had very strong water restrictions a few years back, the idea of watering your driveway became a very, very visible inappropriate offence. Even though no one got yep. fined for it eventually, it was really uh, inappropriate. And the other is if you're driving behind a car these days, 
And when they take off at the lights, you know, a, a gush of disgusting bluey coloured smoke comes out from that that vehicle. Everyone now, I think, or most people have that real, oh, that's not right. And so there, there is a, a very immediate response there. But the as you say, the overall one with climate is not as visible for us just walking around as, as we'd like it to be. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an important um, point with climate change. You know, you, you say that it's been politicised, and it clearly has, um, but it's, it's worth remembering that both in the US and, and in Australia, it's been deliberately suppressed by governments, including also by government agencies. So CSIRO, obviously, there was controversy many years ago about climate change, not being able to speak about it. But I think there's a, there's a more interesting, broader point about scientists as advocates, because... Um, I think there's a bit of a misconception in the community perhaps that um, scientists are these objectives, objective autom- automatons that basically walk around and have no feelings and no values. And we're just like anybody else, of course, right? We, we value mm. things. And I think there's a really important role there for scientists to acknowledge, you know, I, I care about this and I value this. And scientists can still remain objective in terms of performing research while still having values for a particular thing. So, you know, I'll put my hand up and say, I want to see action on climate change. I want to see um, reduced extinction and, and uh, environmental collapse. That doesn't mean that necessarily biases how I do my work. So it's really important about how scientists communicate their work, but also acknowledge that, yeah, they do have these values. Um, and so I don't think that's been necessarily political, but it's, it's about being upfront and about yeah. being transparent that, you know, I value these things and I'm working on these things. And, you know, based on the evidence, key word, based on the evidence that we have mm. and based on the, you know, the power of this study, the likelihood is this. Yeah. So it's very, yeah. it's a very important point, Ewan. And just before we go, I just wanted to say that one of the things that I would love to see is a bit of a shift in language from people at the moment. I, I hate it when people say to me, you know, that they believe in science. Yeah. I, I don't believe in mathematics. Mathematics just is. Um, this is a, yeah. it's a process. It's like you don't believe in biology. It's, a, it's a process. You know, evolution is a process. These are the things that, you know, we're changing and constantly updating our knowledge here. You don't have to believe in it. It doesn't care if you believe in it. Actually, that's you know, a- one of my one of my favourite um, conversations that I had have had countless times with kids in schools when they they'd be doing some sort of experiment and they they so often go, "What's meant to happen?" And I'd be going, "Well, <laughs> nothing's meant to happen. I expect some things to happen, uh, probably, but I don't know what you've done. So I, nothing's meant to happen." And it, initially, it's just sort of a bit it's a frustration for them. But if the conversation flows, they get to exactly that point where it's like, "Yeah, no, no, this is this is not a matter of us doing a thing." Yeah. It's a matter of us observing a thing, and based yeah. on that, we can make some decisions. Yeah. 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 Uh, look, it's all golden stuff. Thank you, team. Good chatting to you. We're going to have to run off to a break so I can get our next uh, couple of guests on the line. That's going to be very interesting. Uh, you guys will like this. We're talking about hydrogen fuel, so uh, right up your alley, all three of you. Um, it's nice stuff. Uh, good to chat. Have a good day, and um, we'll chat again soon. You too, Dr. Shane. Thanks, guys. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and then in a moment we'll be back with a couple of guests from the University of New South Wales to talk about uh, a possible hydrogen fuel economy for Australia. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. And on the line now from the University of New South Wales, I have Nathan Chang and Raman Dayan, both engineers. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you going? Morning. Very well, thank you. It's great to talk to you both about this topic, which is something that uh, I'm intensely interested in for the future of our country and where we're going to go, which is the idea of the use of hydrogen fuels. Now, I think, um, Raman, I might start with you. Can you give us a bit of an idea of the, the process around you know, getting hydrogen and, and utilizing it? Because 
I suppose some people would have the idea of this just being a, a very volatile, explosive you know, molecule that you're best to stay away from. Why, why are we going towards hydrogen? How do we, how do we get it? Okay. Uh, thanks, Shane. So, you know, Australia, we are blessed with sunshine and uh, we are also blessed with natural gas and resources. But, you know, the natural gas resources are going to go away, but the sunshine remains. Mm. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to convert that sunshine and our abundant water resources, seawater, right, as we have sea on all sides, to convert it into hydrogen so that it can be used as an export vector. Now, safety-wise, people think there is a public perception that hydrogen is dangerous. But then again, we've been working with hydrogen ever since, in the 1960s. You know, hydrogen used to be mixed with your natural gas pipeline. Then we've shifted away, and now we're shifting back in. Mm. So it's sort of like, you know, we're not really trying to get in all in with hydrogen. It's just that we are using renewable hydrogen to you know, improve or decrease the carbon emission of certain industries. Yeah. I mean, we all have, um, what is it, methane in our homes? Is that? That's right. And that's how do they compare in terms of uh, danger or, um, you know, ex- I guess explosive potential? Yeah, so th- this is something about hydrogen that, uh, you know, we are trying to investigate. So right now uh, we are uh, we have this ARC training center for the global hydrogen economy. And mm. one of the theme that we have is hydrogen safety. But hydrogen, if you mix it up to 10% in your natural gas, you know, your methane blend, it's safe. It's perfectly fine. You can use it downstream. But the higher concentration, if you have a pure hydrogen stream, then definitely you have issues. But then again, that's the issue with any sort of gases, like methane at its own uh, compressed methane would also have the similar limitation. Yeah, and I suppose compared to uh, you know, the dangers with regards to mining and use of coal, uh, when we really add all that up, it's got to be you know, much lower, I assume. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you don't have to go for underground mining anymore. Uh, mm. I mean, uh, that's one of the biggest, I mean, maybe not in Australia, we're blessed, but in China and you look at the other countries with terrible records. Yep. So this is a way of how, I mean, effectively, hydrogen is sort of like a vector. What happens is that it's how you store sunlight because sunlight, you can store it in batteries, which are also cumbersome, which is also a pathway. And the other one is hydrogen. The advantage of hydrogen is you can ship it off in, you know, in the form of, uh, you can even convert it into hydrocarbon, methane and all those as well with the renewable hydrogen and ship it off to Japan, whereas you can't ship, you know, battery of electricity overseas. And that's mm. what, you know, can be Australia's, you know, next biggest export compare, compete with LNG perhaps. Yeah. Now, just before we go on, because I want to talk about some of the, the commercial aspects and the cost analysis with Nathan, but in terms of, you mentioned, you know, we start with water, obviously H2O, there's plenty of hydrogen in there, but what is the actual process for, for pulling that hydrogen out? Because we know in most cases, when we start breaking up molecules, that takes a fair bit of energy to do that. So how do we do that with, with um, water to get to hydrogen? Okay. Okay, so the best way of thinking about hydrogen and how we generate hydrogen is you consider a plant leaf, right? So plant leaf converts, uses sunlight, carbon dioxide, breaks it into oxygen and glucose. Mm-hmm. So effectively what we do is we make metal leaves, right? And the metal leaves are, you know, with catalyst, uh, with uh, with the metals that you mine in Australia so that we have our Australian value added in as well, right? So we are blessed with resources. So what happens is that you have water molecule come in, you have the sunlight sitting on that catalyst or that metal, metal leaf, and then you can easily apply a small voltage, two volt. You know, it's the same as mm. your AA batteries. Yeah. So, and then you can just split it into hydrogen and oxygen. 
Oxygen, you can take it up for whatever you want, hospital and other application, and the hydrogen is just bubbling off as well. There you go. Um, now, Nathan, let's talk about the, the cost and so forth of this because yeah, I remember you know decades ago now, you know, I was one of the people pushing very hard with things like solar and so forth, and there was a lot of you know, backwards pressure on that because of the initial costs around, around solar. Where are we with hydrogen fuels um, with regards to their cost effectiveness? I mean, the... When I, when I you know hear Raman talking about this and the fact that we can use solar power as our input source, um, but how does that go along the line, and where do we get to in terms of you know X amount of hydrogen at the end um, versus you know say something like coal, which we want to get rid of? Yep, sure, sure. Yeah, so um, when we're uh, talking about producing hydrogen from renewable energy. Um, we, we look at the sunlight and the wind and we think, wow, this is all free. And so the idea is fantastic. Wow, we can use all these free resources. Um, the problem, of course, is that um, it's not entirely free in that we need something to convert the mm. sunlight into firstly electricity and then we need the electrolyzers to then convert the electricity and the water into hydrogen. Um, so, yeah, the great thing about... Um, so I've been, I'm more focused on the uh, solar side of this equation. Um, being you know, involved for a number of years. But the great thing about um, solar, uh, as it's grown and as more and more people have come on board and governments have supported it, um, the, the cost has come down uh, greatly. And um, so there's this thing we call the learning rate where the more that we, that we make it, the better we get at doing it, they become more efficient and then we, we make all these economies of scale and um, we learn how to make things more cheaply. Mm. And so, you know, over a period of maybe 35, 40 years, the cost of solar has, of, of making those modules has come down a hundredfold. So, uh, and that's, I think, part of the reason why this is opening up the possibility of green hydrogen is that, wow, we can really get um, low-cost solar and also this, the same, similar things happen in wind. Um, and then, you know, as we start to develop these electrolyzer technologies, we're hoping that they can follow the same trajectory where we get better and better at making these electrolyzers. Um, they can be more efficient and lower cost. And as the government gets be behind this and in its industry and, and gets behind this, um, we can follow the same, a similar kind of learning curve. Mm. And um, that's one of the things we were looking at uh, in, this, in this work, trying to see, well, what happens if uh, electrolyzer costs can come down uh, and how much lower the, would they need to be? What, what would happen to the, what if the electrolyzer efficiency were to increase? Uh, how much better would it need to be? And the same with PV. The PV costs are still going to come down. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. And and I was just, I mean, what you seem to have done with your calculations in this paper you've produced is rather than try and work out an exact cost, you seem to have put out a, a range over, you know, I, I suppose, a number of various inputs that you've used. So, you know, if, if some of these things are varied, then the cost of production of hydrogen will be in this range. How does that then yep. compare? And I'm not sure what sort of comparison do you make here, like quanta of energy, energy density, you know, cost per per joule. Like what, what sort of comparison do you then make with um, something like coal or natural gas or, or even nuclear? Yep. Yep. So in this particular case, the metric we chose, and it's a good question because you know, the metric you choose is going to obviously change uh, the comparison you're making. So in this case, we were looking at the production of green hydrogen. And so the metric was, you know, what does it cost to make one kilogram of green hydrogen? But we had to average it over the lifetime of our system mm -hmm. because you, know, you would install a system like this uh, at the beginning and spend a lot of money yep. you know, making a solar 
your solar array and making electrolyzers, but then you would get your hydrogen you know, almost for free after that. Uh, you still have to pay some additional costs you know, for water and things like that. Um, so we're looking at a, a levelized cost of hydrogen. So what's the average, essentially the average cost of hydrogen over the course of the lifetime of that system? Um, and there are various targets that um, various governments have put out for what we want to achieve in order to, to start becoming uh, competitive. So uh, Australia is looking at two Australian dollars per kilogram of hydrogen as um, a really, really aggressive target. Um, but you know, different countries have different targets. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just uh, to add on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go, go, Roman. Go ahead. No, just to add on on what Nathan said and your question as well that. Um, so that we looked at cases where we use this hydrogen and then we look at existing stream and we are getting into that competitive zone. Yeah. So for steel making, yes, we're getting there. For ammonia fertilizers, this is done overseas. You have demonstration plants where you have renewable hydrogen feeding and you know substituting fossil fuel natural gas. Mm. So these are getting competitive right now. And Australia, we have the chance of actually utilizing and getting onto that market. Yeah, yeah. And look, we're almost out of time, guys, but I just wanted to make really something clear about what you've been saying, and people may not have picked up on this, but it's the term green hydrogen. So you're not pulling power off the grid that's generated by coal or other dirty resources. You're talking about off the grid um, standalone plants that uh, produce hydrogen as a, potentially as an export that aren't connected to the grid. Is, is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so you can hydrogen is great in that when you burn it, you you don't produce any carbon dioxide. But mm. the problem is, how do you get the hydrogen to start with? Yep. And um, so you can, of course, make it from fossil fuels like methane. You can turn it into hydrogen, but then you end up with carbon dioxide left over. And so then, if you want it to be green, you need to well, had, what do you do with the carbon dioxide? Can you capture it and store it? That kind of thing. Um, but yeah, when we're talking about green hydrogen, we're saying okay, you can produce hydrogen from water, but you need to do it without um, using yep. fossil fuel electricity, um, essentially. So using yep. uh, green uh, electricity from solar or from wind. Yeah. Look, guys, it's uh, fantastic work. Congratulations on this paper you put out and these calculations and so forth. Hopefully, it will influence the right people in the right places. Um, certainly, there's a lot of people down uh, part of my show who and our listeners who I know support this sort of um, production of cleaner resources for, for the world. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein the Go-Go. Thank you thanks very much. Thanks so much, Shane. Thanks, guys. Uh, folks, that was uh, Nathan Cheng and Raman Dayan Dayan from um, the University of New South Wales, both engineers up there doing some really spectacular work. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with our next guests in a moment. We're going to be talking about the topic of sepsis, which is a huge issue around the world. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Go Go on 3 Triple R. On the line with us now, I have Dr. Christina Nadev from the School of Molecular Sciences at La Trobe University. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to talk to you on what is a, a topic that I think some people may be unaware of how big a problem this is, and that's the issue of sepsis. Before we get on to the numbers of just how many people this affects, can you just run us through what happens when the body experiences this condition? Yeah, so um, sepsis, as many know it as blood poisoning, is the body's extreme response to an infection. So this is when an infection becomes systemic and when this happens, the disease becomes a life-threatening medical emergency. 
So uh, tissues start to die, uh, organs start to shut down and death can result from this. Hmm. And and in terms of like the number, you know, this sounds like something that's pretty common, you know, our bodies experience these sorts of infections all the time. Um, How many people are sort of, I guess, worldwide dealing with sepsis each year? So worldwide there's around 11 million deaths and over 15,000 cases in Australia alone and of those over 6,000 die. So it's quite a serious problem. So this disease can account for more deaths than many of the top cancers combined. Hmm. So it's quite a serious disease, yeah. So just just confirm that. You said 5,000 deaths in Australia or is that well, yeah? Yeah, it's about... It's about five and a half thousand to six thousand deaths in Australia alone. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's incredible when you put that into perspective of the. You know, we're, we've very successfully managed, I think, to some degree anyway, to get through the COVID period. But there's been about a thousand deaths, I think, in Australia, which is catastrophic. Um, mm-hmm. But compared to this, it's one fifth of the number of deaths from sepsis, and most people haven't really heard about this. I think is is a big issue, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's the issue, yes. So in terms of my understanding is that the, the disease has two stages. Can you talk us through what, what happens there with the body? Yeah, so uh, sepsis is characterized by two deadly stages. So the initial phase or the inflammatory phase, also known as septic shock, is where you get exaggerated inflammation occurring. And then this phase uh, transitions into this prolonged immunosuppression phase. So this is where you get marked immune cell death. And this uh, commonly leads to pneumonia, right? And while the initial uh, shock phase accounts for about 15% of total sepsis-related deaths, the immunosuppression accounts for the majority, which is around 85%, Mm. quite a deadly uh, stage of the disease. Yeah, 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 extraordinary. Now, um, in the information you sent through to me, um, I understand that we've been trying to do some clinical trials to resolve this for about 30 years without success and there's been some 100 of those. What? Why are we struggling so much? So the inflammation associated with the disease is the most pronounced symptom and um, therefore it was an obvious target for intervention However, we now know that information is necessary in order to clear infection from the system. So, in effect, a lot of these uh, trials or drugs that targeted the inflammation had the reverse effect and actually increased mortality as opposed to protecting against the disease. And also, uh, in the past, people have targeted the uh, microorganisms themselves. So now there's plenty of evidence that suggests it's actually our own body's response to the infection that causes the disease and not the infection mm. itself. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's where we're at at the moment. Yeah, I suppose we're learning a huge amount at the moment with regards to um, our immune system. It's one of the things I've mentioned over the, the two big things for me over the last sort of decade have been um, our neurological functions in the brain and our immune system. And we've seen this explosion of knowledge in our understanding of the immune system, but mm-hmm. it's still so complicated that we, we really don't have a handle on it. Now, you've been working, exactly. you've been working on a particular uh, therapy that is a bit different. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we kind of looked at this disease from a different angle. And um, we used a genetic screen to identify genes that work 
in both of these stages of sepsis, right? So we showed that this um, particular gene that we identified from that screen is able to modulate both these stages of sepsis. So once it's deleted, we are able to stop the immune cell death and control the inflammation associated with the disease. And I'll just add to that, um, what actually makes this work so groundbreaking is the fact that we, for the first time, uh, we are the ones, sorry, we are the ones that have identified a gene that regulates both these stages for the first time. So this mm. hasn't been done before. Yeah. So quite, it's quite uh, interesting. So when, when you talk, so presumably there a treatment would be to switch this gene off. Um, as, yeah. as whenever I hear this though, I always ask, do we need it for something or is it okay to switch it off? Like what would that, what would the consequences be for us? Well, we've done a lot of these studies in mice at the moment, so it's all preclinical. And these mice are actually, we have deleted this gene and they're very healthy mm. and fertile and they live normal lifespans. So if we are able to translate that in the human setting where we'll design, essentially design antibodies to block that gene in humans or block the protein associated with that gene in humans, they, it shouldn't have any effect at normal levels, so the people should be healthy and hopefully protected against the, the disease itself. Yeah, is this something that you would do for everyone, or would you just do it for people in those high risk situations or when they start to have the disease of sepsis? Well, we would hopefully introduce it when they have an onset of those symptoms. Yep. Right. So it's it's not a prophylactic treatment. It would be something that once you have the disease, then we would administer the therapeutic or the drug. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me, and just finally, um, before we, we let you go, Christina, this is such a monstrous issue around the world and, and in Australia. I'm hoping that, you know, money has, you know, big tip truckers just sort of unloaded some money out there at Latrobe for you guys to speed this work up. Is that is, is that going yeah, okay? Yeah, well, <laughs> unfortunately, that's that's not the case at the moment. And the thing is, we have progressed to a point where we have identified human equivalents of this gene. So in order to design these antibody, these blocking antibodies or any sort of therapeutic, we do require that extra funding. Mm. Otherwise, fortunately, the work will cease to exist and that will be devastating, especially for those people who have sepsis and yeah, this wouldn't progress any further. So yeah. hopefully get more funding. <laughs> well, good luck with that because I know this, like like many medical conditions that we don't hear about, aren't often on the, the front pages of, of the news and, and they tend to get less um, in the terms of funding as a result. But this is not one that uh, affects an insignificant number of people. It affects an incredibly large number of people. So um, exactly. congratulations on this great work and identifying that gene. That's really spectacular stuff. And I hope, I very much hope that you get what you need to progress this into human trials and so forth. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R. Thanks, Shane. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Folks, we're going to take a break now for some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a moment with our next guest. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein Go Go. Uh, we have our next guest on the line now. He is Associate Professor Marco Herald. He is from the Blood Cells and Blood Cancer Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Marco, welcome to Triple R. How are you going? 
Hey, good. Morning, Shane. How are you going? I'm great. Look, it's um, it's good to talk to you because we wanted to talk about something, and this was sort of a less a press release. You know, often we get guests because press releases and things come out, but of course, the big news earlier in the year was the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which was awarded for CRISPR, which is this um, special technique. And I'm going to let you explain what CRISPR is because I think um, obviously you've been you've been one of the first people working on it in Australia for quite some time. So give give us a quick layman's um, well layperson. I should say, explanation of uh, what we're talking about with CRISPR. Yeah, so CRISPR essentially was um, is a methodology which allows you to kind of manipulate um, DNA, your genome, and it's like a molecular scissor you can direct to any spot in your genome to cut it. And once you cut that bit, then the um, genome has to be has to repair it to fix it very quickly. Mm-hmm. It does it very much sloppy in a narrow prone way, and thereby you get errors and mutations. And then you essentially what you want to reach in the most in the first instances was to inactivate a gene. Now that means or a genomic region. Now what happened further was then it was further developed and developed, and then you are even capable of doing it specifically. So you're not doing just at random what I just described, but you can do it like to change uh, one you know, letter from one letter into the other and either to repair a gene or cause a disease-causing gene. So that's essentially the whole thing behind the CRISPR. Yeah, and so this is something that my understanding is this is unlike some techniques in, in biology. This is a, a very cheap, and I've even, I, I know this is probably a bad way to put it, but I've heard some biologists refer to it as simple technique. Is that, is that true? It is, in essence, true. It is simple in its most basic form, what I just described to you. Mm. So you can use it just two components, and they work across the board. So you don't need to do so many adaptions. So you can just use them, you know, in you know plant cells, in animal cells, or in whole organisms, and so on. So that's indeed true. Yeah. Yeah. In in the whole organ, organism sort of scenario, I mean, explain to me how that works because my understanding, and I'm a physicist, so you got to help me out, um, is that my genome is contained in every cell in my body. So that's everywhere. So when you do this sort of CRISPR editing. Are you editing every cell in the body or are you just editing editing some of the cells or the ones that produce new cells? How does that work? Yeah, so if you did it like somatically, you probably, the different somatic and germline is, you know, somatic are the cells which don't make up, go not further in the next generation. So if you did it like that, then essentially um, you don't edit the whole body. You do a few cells. And a good example is because we work in the blood, you know, you take out stem cells which make up your blood, hematopoietic or blood stem cells. You take them out, you can manipulate them, put them back, and then essentially your whole immune system can be made up from these manipulated stem cells. So that would be one example. So somatic gene therapies. One thing which is highly debated, obviously, is the germline editing, right? And this is where you then would start off with a one-cell stage embryo where we all come from, and then you go ahead and edit there, and that would then make the mark in every cell which makes up our bodies. Mm. So one of the interesting things I've found over the years is when people have talked about genetically modified foods and things of that nature, there's often some controversy there around you know what exactly is being changed. You know, and, and, and often we don't talk about you know chemicals in a sense, but people talk about, oh, I'm taking this from a pig and I'm putting it in an avocado or you know, there's that kind of cross-species sort of mentality. Even though I think for, for the most part, we're talking, you know, if you sort of pull it back a bit, and this is probably where you're working, the, the base level, we're talking about chemicals. We're not talking about those, you know, hydrogen doesn't belong to rabbits. It, it, it's in, you know, it's in, in every living thing. So what what in terms of, how, how, well, I suppose what I'm asking is how does that 
sort of scenario of concern, A, from cross-species sort of issues, but B, from just the acceleration of what we would normally, in many cases, do through normal farming practices over sometimes, you know, millennia. How do do those concerns play into the CRISPR scenario where, as you say, you know, in some sense, you're tinkering with sort of an evolutionary process potentially? That's correct, yeah. So if you're talking, for example, about plants or, you know, as you alluded, one example is you want to make them more resistant to some certain Mm. bacteria or some, you know, pathogens. So what you can do, you know, you would take out that gene and you could do that either by breeding a certain subset, which takes you years, or you do it with CRISPR, which you could do essentially overnight. I'm not a plant biologist, Mm. but it would take you a few days. And so there's an interesting fact because Australia has gone on the side that these plants will then no longer be called um, genetically engineered. So if you do that with CRISPR and you're not introducing new information with your CRISPR, new genetic information from, as you mentioned, other species, then it's not genetically engineered anymore. So that means it is considered as a non... That came last year in October into place in Australia and America is similar. While as Europe has gone the opposite way, they call it still engineered and now they have the problem also what's a naturally occurring mutation and what's a crispr induced mutation they can't distinguish anymore so their labs are very much who check the food are very much under pressure to find out how they best can do that so i think australia has gone a good way so that means if you're not introducing new dna it's a non-engineered um essentially crop hmm. i think that's, that's yeah yeah i mean ethically i think that sounds reasonable because you're, you're talking about just speeding up changes within an organism that might happen eventually anyway and and there may be some ethics around that but that's a bit different to the idea of pulling something that would i suppose in many cases never occur in a million years naturally that's probably the the sort of the backlash isn't it that these things you know you'll you'll never get that particular gene from from that animal in this plant ever that's correct that's correct so if you would do that that would be obviously then a transgene and you had to label that same as before but you could do it in a much cleaner and faster way yeah now um now just on to your work a little bit because you've been using CRISPR somewhat in the labs there at um wehi in particular around covid tell us about that oh so that's the newest kid on the block essentially from the CRISPR world so what we have done is um so what i told you all before is like CRISPR genome engineering and so on and what people have found over the years, this is all caused by one enzyme. And now they have found multiple enzymes. You know, other enzymes can do that as well in the prokaryotes. But what they have found, these newer CRISPR enzymes, they are quite um, kind of cool in a way that they're not only um, cutting the DNA like the other ones would do, but what they can do is essentially they once they cut their specific DNA, they're like a light switch turned on, and then they cut every piece of DNA which would float around in the sample. So now to make it kind of, I hope that I get it across now, make it easy to understand. So you have, for example, pathogenic DNA in a sample of a person, like a COVID-infected person. Mm-hmm. Then you program this enzyme to recognize this COVID-specific, the viral-specific DNA. So this one will then recognize that. And then once it recognizes it's correct, then it will be, so to say, cleave it, but it will be activated and leave everything within the reaction which you put in and we put in like so to say um fluorophores which upon cleavage will be activated as well so then you get light emission so in very easy words is a pathogen there you turn the light switch on and you see light if the pathogen is not there you basically can't see the light and that means the sample is negative so you can distinguish oh. a positive so this is so you, you take a small prick of my blood, you put it in a in a little sample, you you whack a little bit of your special CRISPR enzyme yep. new version in there, 
chicken under a microscope, it immediately glows, I've got COVID. Is that Not it? even under microscope. We have automated this in a machine. So it's right. a cartridge. You load it on a cartridge, your blood, everything is in there. And then you put it in a machine and the machine tells you, okay, you are positive or negative. Wow. And, that, and the advantage is we have done it. So we are still in the first phases. So we are currently developing it up to the machine, but we have done it in a times about 15 to 20 minutes until the test is basically ready to tell your result. And yeah. that's a big advantage of set because, you know, if you have a COVID test now, it takes you half a day. I mean, it's very good what they mm. do, but still it takes you some time and there's a lot of logistics involved. This one would have the advantage. You go there, you get your brick of blood, you wait 10, 15 minutes, have a coffee or something, and then you get the results straight away on the spot. Yeah, I mean, this is something interesting because one of the things I've said all along is that, um, especially in airports and plane travel, where everyone, you know, you spend bloody forever waiting at the airport anyway. If you yeah. could do this test in 15 minutes, I mean, it takes longer to check in. Um, yeah, like you could, you could do all of that whilst in transit. And if you've got a positive test, well, I'm sorry, but you just, you know, you go back and isolate and go home. But that would allow us to go back to, you know, in many regards, normal ways of, of life, wouldn't it? That fast, rapid turnaround. That's correct, yeah, because that's exactly the idea. We put it up at airports, either at departing or at incoming flights. In Australia, you can imagine when you wait, while you wait for your luggage, you could test the people and then see, you know, who is positive and not, who not, who has to be quarantined or who could go on and live mm. a normal life. Mm. Now, just, just uh, you know, because I've got this evil scientist gene somewhere, um, with regards to what you're talking about, though, can the process of CRISPR be used as a technology to fight the infection itself? I think it, in theory it can be done, but a lot of more work has to be done in order to work from that. There is some proof-of-concept papers out there where they have mm. done it, you know, they have an enzyme like CRISPR enzyme, and this can destroy then the um, viral genome. But that's essentially not yet ripe enough, I would say, to do that. But that would be optimal, I don't know, if we could do that very quickly. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Now, where are we in terms of these um, diagnostic tests in terms of their availability? Because obviously, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, and everything with COVID's like, you know, it's got to be next week. But in reality, what, what sort of time frame would we be maybe guessing at in terms of deployment, even just in Australia, of this sort of testing regime? Yeah, so I mean, that's um, essentially something we have put out there. Um, and the quickest we can be, and as you said, everybody expects overnight. Yeah. And I don't want to disappoint people, but it is 18 months essentially yeah. now yeah. until we have something. And it, this would be already an emergency approved um, diagnostic. Yeah. And how does that compare, like 18 months, how does that compare to other diagnostics? Is that is that super fast? I mean, in perspective? Well, the thing is, we would have it in a way that it's because we are developing this machine and this relatively easy test. That means you don't need any specified, um, you know, lab equipment or very highly trained people. That makes it so attractive. Well, as if you could run it in the lab and in the US, they have used something similar, which can only be done in the lab. And then you need lab, spe you know, lab specifics. You need the people very trained up. Then you can do it in six months. Yep. But we want to do it really in a way that we are also prepared for potential next pandemic right if yeah. something happens because yeah. you can quickly adapt in future yeah now uh, just before we go i just wanted to ask you uh, i suppose 10 15 years ago people hadn't really heard of crispr at all is this something now when you come through sort of high school biology classes and so forth that people are, are learning about is it is it moved into the mainstream of education to that point Yes, it has actually. So it is. So when you say 15 years, it's actually the first thing 
where it was the first time shown briefly was in 2012, 2013. Oh, it's even sooner. Yeah. Seven, eight years ago, it only started. And that's when we got the, where it started to be taken out of the prokaryotes into the, you know, mammalian systems. And that's when we, uh, how fast the Nobel Prize was given, you can tell. And schools talk about, and you watch CSI on TV and they are solving any problems with using CRISPR. So. <laughs> well, if it's in it's, CSI, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's got to be true. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think a lot of people bag that stuff out. But one thing I've said is in those shows, they, even when the explanations are wrong, they're very clear. And yes. you know, I think a lot of scientists can learn a lot from that, um, that sometimes even even wrong explanations can be communicated very effectively. And that's how shows like CSI and House and other medical shows do, you know, and investigation shows do so well. Um, look, uh, Marco, it's great talking to you. It's one of the sort of people who first started using uh, CRISPR here in Australia. And it sounds like you're doing some super interesting stuff there at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Thanks so much for telling us all about it and um, being part of the show today. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Have a good day. Thank you, you very much. Bye. Folks, uh, that was um, uh, Associate Professor Marco Herald, who's from the Blood Cells and Blood Cancer Division of the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. And super interesting stuff there, because I think um, most of us would agree that if we could get a test for, well, not just COVID, but anything of that type that could be done inside of, you know, I'd be good with an hour, but if they can do it in 15 and 20 minutes or so, that would be even better. But uh, spectacular work. And uh, it's interesting how we come to accept uh, these things being around for a while, but to hear that uh, CRISPR really was only about 2012, um, boy, have they come a long way in a short space of time with that technology. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.